Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hello again. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, where we fill healthcare clinics and organizations with engaged patients who value the treatment they are receiving at those locations. Uh, if you want to learn more about that, you can head on over to www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. That's rehab, the letter U, practicesolutions.com. This week, we are diving back into the world of interdisciplinary care. We're going to talk more about those factors that are not just the pathophysiological that may affect our clients or our patients' long-term health and clinical outcomes. Really had the uh, just a joy and pleasure of having a conversation with a former colleague of mine when I was a consultant for the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities here in Georgia. Um, her name is Josie Baker. We worked together on a project that was helping the state of Georgia achieve its goal of transitioning individuals out of institution-based care to more community-based and, in- and inclusive residential programs. So we did, you know, we called it uh, integrated uh, mobile integrated clinical support. So we did some clinical oversight for the state. We provided advisory and clinical assessments for folks in in our state that were transitioning out. It was just a, a lot of really fun work that had a big impact. I mean, we, we were able to see folks that had lived in a, in a state hospital or state institution sometimes for decades at a time um, enter their, their own home for the first time, right? Like, it was really, really fun work. And Josie and I worked together on that team, and she was a social worker, I was an occupational therapist and a like a community support specialist, and through our work together, we ended up doing a lot of uh, projects and work related to interdisciplinary care, um, case management, all of that kind of stuff. And I noticed a while back that she had left uh, doing that type of work and was now working with Soda Health, and I'll let her tell you a little bit more about what Soda Health is and how they aim to... to fix uh, a lot of the the issues with the social determinants of health in healthcare. But primarily what I wanted to spend some time talking with her about was the whole concept and idea uh, behind the social determinants of health. If you're like me, um, maybe in the academic setting, you've heard a lot about the social determinants of health. You've seen the research come out about it. Um, If you're a clinician, maybe boots on the ground, you might have heard it. It mentioned in passing, maybe at a CME conference or a CEU course or something like that. But the the term itself can seem very ambiguous, very academic, very heady and intellectual. And it's hard to take, kind of draw the the, the connect the dots, if you would, from this intellectual concept or this um, this really thirty thousand foot view of all of the factors affecting an individual's health and then tying it to what do we actually do with this patient or with this person in the clinic who's sitting in front of me who I know has XYZ factors that might be affecting their participation in treatment or their even a, a ability to um, attend appointments and, and all of that sort of the milieu in which these these people, these these patients that we serve live. So I wanted to have a conversation with Josie specifically about the social determinants of health, kind of a high level, define them, what are they, how do they impact uh, an individual's health, and what can we as clinicians, um, clinicians boots on the ground actually treating individuals, what can organizations or administrators, healthcare managers and case managers do to actually affect change or support these individuals through some of the the, the trying and the difficult times they might be going through. So hopefully this, um, 
This conversation provides a little bit of insight about the social determinants of health. Hopefully it provides you some practical tips and resources. Josie has been gracious enough to send us a few links to um, some organizations that have resources available about learning more about the social determinants of health and then actual helping individuals find specific services based on their location. And we'll link to all of those links in the show notes. You can find those at solutions.com. Just click on the tab for podcast, find episode, um, this episode, and then look on, the, on at the very bottom. We'll have all of those resources linked. So without further ado, here is a conversation with Josie Baker about the social determinants of health. Well, hey, Josie, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, Rocky, I'm good. And yourself? I'm doing all right. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about the social determinants of health and kind of diving into that topic. But before we do that, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your work, and uh, kind of what you're doing now with Soda Health? Yeah, so thanks, Rafi, for inviting me to be on your podcast. Um, Just to provide some background and context to the listener. Um, So I am a social worker by profession. Um, I'm certain your listeners have some general understanding of social work, but I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that there are some stereotypes about the profession. (laughs) Um, So just to provide some context that I think is also useful as we talk about social determinants of health today, um, because certainly social workers uh, view this as an important component of our work. But social work, you know, as a profession is devoted to helping people function the best they can in their environment. Um, And so we believe in, you know, the principles of uh, patient-centered care, empowerment, and true assessment of need. Um, And so as a social worker, um, you know, I have worked predominantly uh, and exclusively, frankly, in the state of Georgia, uh, predominantly with individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, For about the past 10 years, I've been working with Georgia to achieve its goal of inclusivity and moving individuals from institutional settings. And through that work, uh, really saw the importance of needs identification and developing uh, true care plans for individuals such that they could achieve their identified goals. Um, And as you do that, you also take a look at what are factors that would Um, both promote an individual's independence and serve as barriers to them. And we'll talk about those factors today. Um, But certainly, you know, my work here in Georgia, uh, where I currently reside, um, served as a a great basis for the work that I'm doing now with Soda Health. Um, So we are a healthcare technology company that's focused on building solutions to eliminate health inequities um, and create a healthier America. And so I'm able to leverage my experience both uh, through my work with individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities, and then also more broadly as a social worker um, to develop solutions and products for the company. Yes. Awesome. Um, Thanks for that background. And (laughs) it's worth noting that you and I worked together on, on a couple of those projects here in Georgia. That was some, just some really impactful work, some fun times. We had a great team. (laughs) We did indeed, Rafi. It was a pleasure to work with you. And, you know, I think that that's also something that we can highlight here for just a moment is that um, social workers often work as a part of a broader treatment team. Exactly. Um, And so it's really important for us to uh, think about the partnerships that we can create with PTs, OTs, other clinicians and therapists to uh, create meaningful change for our patients. And so it really takes a village. And uh, yeah, working with you was a real pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well, so we've had some guests come on the show before. And usually when the topic of social determinants of health come up, it's usually mentioned kind of like in passing, like, oh, obviously social determinants of health, yada, yada, yada. Um, but I have a feeling, especially for like myself as an allied health professional, like it wasn't until I started doing some of the work with you and with, with Georgia that I really began learning a little bit more about it. So can you just define like just the term, like what do we mean when we say the social determinants of health? Yeah, so uh, just uh, for ease, I'll start referring to social determinants of health as SDOH uh, for, for the listener. It's a mouthful, um, yes. <laughs> yeah, it is a mouthful. Um 
but they're all the factors that impact a person's health. And so um, they're the non-medical factors that affect health outcomes. So the World Health Organization defines SDOH as the conditions in which people are born, grow, work, live, and age, and the wider set of forces and systems that um, shape daily life. And so as we engage in our conversation today, it's important to note now um, that while healthcare is essential to health, uh, research tells us that it's a relatively weak health determinant. Um, and so addressing SDOH also endeavors to reduce health disparities that are often rooted in social and economic disadvantages. Yeah, so sometimes it's not just getting access to care, but there's also things like, um, like the five categories, right? There's economic stability, education, healthcare access, the living environment, and, and all of that. Maybe we can talk a little bit about kind of each of those categories and how they can affect an individual's health. Because sometimes, you, like some of it is obvious, it's pretty obvious. Like if you can't afford to go to the doctor, there's, there's economic <laughs> impact affecting your health, right? Right, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I, I appreciate the way that you've organized that, uh, Rafi. This is such a broad topic that bringing some structure to SDOH is often helpful, particularly for those who may be new to the topic or hearing about this topic. Uh, for the first time, but might have some general understanding of the themes. Um, but I do want to mention that SCOH can extend beyond yes. um, the five areas that I'm going to hit on today. Um, and so there are some great tools, um, you know, uh, from the World Health Organization and other um, uh, government uh, departments uh, that your listener can, can access online that could, goes into greater detail about some additional factors. But yeah, let's talk about them. Let's, um, let's start with economic stability because that often underpins so many of the other things going on in a patient's life. So according to the Census Bureau, about one in 10 people in the United States live in poverty. Um, and so when we think about economic stability, we're considering a person's access to employment um, and that extends to job training as well, uh, stable, affordable housing, and food insecurity. So all of those factors that you know income um, can in, can affect, we would view as being a part of economic stability. And so when we think about patients, um, we know that for those who experience this particular factor, um, they're having to make difficult decisions frequently, and they may yeah. have to sacrifice in one area. Um, such that they could maybe get the care they need. So for example, um, you know, if childcare is an issue, um, a patient may not be able to afford childcare. So they may forego, you know, a clinic appointment um, and elect instead to provide the childcare for, for, their, for their loved one. Um, and so those are the types of themes that we're thinking about and e with economic stability is just general income and barriers to, um, you know, uh, having a stable income and being able to afford utilities and the like. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I think, especially being in the clinic and seeing patients from all walks of life come in, that, that seems like something that it's something that comes up pretty frequently. And like you said, like I'm shocked by the, the one in 10 Americans living in poverty. To me, that seems extremely high, especially for the the most wealthy nation on the face of the earth, right? Um, but it is something that we come in contact with a lot. And it is something that we work with with patients that come in and we're going to try to schedule and we'll try to make it work so that it, it works for your for your finances. But I think that all happens sort of administratively almost. Like we're taking care of that from an administrative standpoint in order to get the patient to the clinic or in order to do XYZ. But we don't often, at least clinicians, often don't think about that as being almost directly tied to that individual's health and their health outcomes, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and Rob, I think maybe, you know, as our conversation today evolves, we'll talk about how to assess for need um, in this area, but you bring up a great point um, that sometimes we identify what the need is, um, but don't maybe don't know how to address it in a way that is a truly patient-centered um, so yeah, that's economic stability. I know there were a couple of others that you wanted me to highlight. So for example, you know, education. So here we're thinking about um, access to quality education, frankly, 
we're thinking yeah. about things like literacy, which um, for, for the listener, I think is important to note too, that um, general literacy also affects health literacy. Yes. And we know that oftentimes patient outcomes are associated with their ability to understand um, the medical information conveyed to them by a clinician, by a physician, et cetera. Um, it's also access to early childhood education um, and all of the important uh, developmental milestones that occur uh, and how you know, parents or others caring for children are able to navigate uh, childhood development and it provide the educational resources that a child may need. Um, and access to vocational training or higher education. And so again, um, thinking about economic stability, which we've just addressed, education is so critical um, in terms of being able to obtain and maintain employment. Um, and so all of those uh, things combined uh, make up education as one of the social determinants of health. Yeah, and it is one of those. It's, the more and more you dig into this, the more and more you see that now, it's not an easy fix, right? Like, well, you got to get, you know, economic stability in order to improve health outcomes, but economic stability, like the underlying factor could be education. Well, now you got to fix the education system. And <laughs> I'm sure we're going to dive into living environment and how that affects education, right? Absolutely. It's all interconnected, truly. And that's why addressing, uh, you know, one SDOH factor in a silo is not going to uh, it yeah. is my opinion that it's not going to make meaningful and lasting change for a client. And so when we think about something like healthcare access, for example, um, we're thinking about access to healthcare coverage, um, yeah. you know, for those who may be eligible for Medicaid or Medicare as well, uh, providing education to them about their eligibility and supporting them through that process. Uh, we know that that uh, that can be arduous uh, and may, they may need support uh, in, in that endeavor. Uh, for those who are who do receive health care coverage, we also know that there are sometimes disparities in provider availability, um, rural, ver rural versus urban settings in particular. Um, and we think, too, to your point earlier about transportation, if you live in a rural setting and the nearest provider is, say, 50 miles away, Transportation yeah. can be a barrier to accessing care as well. The other thing to note here uh, within the context of the healthcare system is the provision of um, culturally and linguistically competent care. Uh -huh. um, so, and that ties to health literacy as we previously discussed, um, but providing information, providing care to a patient in a manner that's consistent with uh, any you know, cultural considerations and in a manner that is consistent with any language considerations um, so that we meet patients where they are and that they can engage fully in their treatment. And then just general quality of care. Um, you know, certainly there's a body of research now about outcomes um, for those who had COVID-19, for example, and geographic areas where they received care and related outcomes. And so, um, you know, I think that's important to note here as well as is the, the zip code component. I don't know if you know this, Rafi, but sometimes zip code is considered to be a greater predictor of health than your, you know, um, genetic uh, background. Uh, yeah, and that's a so crazy, crazy it's fact. Very, it's very <laughs> crazy. And so I think that's an important uh, thing to note here as we talk about um, our healthcare system. And then living environment. Uh, so there we're thinking about um, housing stability, uh, accessibility as well for any people who may have disabilities, being able to have accessible um, homes, uh, uh, the affordability of housing. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't take yes. note of the rising cost of housing across our country um, and how uh, because of that, that can lead to some transience for people and that the impact of having an unstable homing, uh, unstable housing uh, can be very challenging uh, for people. Um, also, uh, you know, the living environment um, is also a part of your broader neighborhood and community context. So um, availability of grocery stores, pharmacies, um, 
you know, again, playing into the healthcare system, availability of, of doctors and urgent cares and ERs, et cetera. Those are all things that are tied um, to the living environment. We also should note here, Rafi, that there are things that um, uh, we, we would need to assess further with a, with a patient, but for example, pest control, right? So yeah. that's something that until I took this job, maybe I hadn't fully considered is just how important it is to assess for things like pest control um, and how a patient may be um, you know, unwilling, quote unquote, uh, to allow a clinician into the home. And it could be because there is indeed a, an infestation of some kind. And so I think it all again speaks to the quality of housing um, and the safety of that housing as well, both um, in terms of the structure itself and overall neighborhood safety. Yeah. And then lastly, of those when, that you wanted me to discuss today, you know, the, the uh, social and community context, so things like social integration um, and social support. Uh, we know that um, social isolation is a um, considerable risk factor, particularly for older adults. Um, and so, you know, how can we address social isolation and promote inclusion? Um, also, uh, the broader themes of discrimination, of stress in environment, um, I think is uh, important to, to note in the context of uh, community and social as well. So those are broad themes. Again, there is considerable research on uh, SDOH that I would encourage uh, your listeners to review should they be interested in these topics, um, because I think that it does have implications for patient care and, and development of treatment plans. Yeah, we'll try to link to like the World Health Organization and stuff in the in the show notes. I think one of the things you mentioned there at the end, like the the isolation and loneliness and all of that kind of stuff, obviously with with our work with folks with developmental disabilities, it's it's a little bit more obvious and pronounced. You know, somebody that's alone and doesn't have any support system other than like paid staff is caring for them. Obviously, they're in a they're in a much much tougher spot. But even in folks in their day to day life, as we age, you know, I've got a neighbor. I'm thinking down the street who's it was her and her husband and her her spouse died maybe a couple months ago, and there aren't any cars coming in and out of her house. You know, so. Right. You know, like somebody like that who is quote unquote healthy or typically developed or, or whatever can still be at risk for really some negative outcomes just from social isolation, right? Absolutely, Rafi. And I think that's why it's important to the extent possible to build community. So you've taken note of a neighbor who had a significant life change and how we can, even at a very individual level, not even within the clinical context, yeah. but how can we really reach out to people and help them? Uh, when we know that there's a, a change in their circumstance. And so I think that um, I know that your, your listener base is predominantly those who are in, you know, allied health. But I also think it's important to note here that we just as, you know, citizens uh, yeah. can do our part to, to support our neighbors around these, these very issues. Yeah, be the change you want to see in the world, right? Yeah, I couldn't say it better. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, while a lot of these topics obviously are, are very important and it's a very, very broad topic. It can often sound, you know, heady or academic, even in nature. You know, I'm a, I'm a former professor by trade. So I'm like thinking about the research and the implications and this, that, and the, and this, that, and the other, but it's, it can seem very, you know, almost something into as an intellectual exercise. Right. But I'm sure there are some real world implications to these concepts that clinicians and healthcare professionals may often overlook in their day-to-day -day interactions with patients, right? Oh, certainly. Um, and I think, uh, you know, you set us up for success with this particular question with your, <laughs> uh, with your reference to your neighbor. So let's just take that for just one second, right? So if, a, if an individual, you know, um, has a loved one who served as primary caregiver and passes away, I mean, that, that uh, creates likely a financial burden could uh, you know have implications for access to transportation and generally you know navigating their care, uh, particularly if they're grieving. And so yes, these concepts are indeed you know kind of intellectual in nature. Um, but I think that when you break it down and take a look at just the person and you think about what is impacting them, it makes it a little bit easier to digest and it makes it more applicable 
to both personal and professional application. Um, but here's what I'll say in response to your specific question, um, Rafi. You know, speaking as a social worker and someone now in the healthcare industry, you know, I think it's critical um, for clinicians to consider the entirety of a patient's experience when developing a treatment plan. Yeah. So, you know, I think about some of your past episodes, you've talked about the importance of like a biopsychosocial approach um, to identifying patient need. And I think that plays in nicely to the conversation um, that we're, we're having here today. Um, so because both directly relate to SDOH. And, yeah. you know, clinicians could also consider adopting a social needs assessment as part of like their standard intake process. Um, so I hope your listeners don't accept this as like an endorsement of any particular tool. I'm merely sharing a resource yeah. here. So for example, um, they may consider the PREPARE tool. So that stands for the protocol for responding to and assessing patients' assets, risks, and experiences. So as noted in their toolkit, you know, it's a standardized patient risk assessment tool and a process and collection of resources uh, to identify and act on SDOH. Um, likewise, you know, the American Academy of Family Physicians has a social needs screening tool that's pretty quick and easy to use. And uh, I'm sure you'll put this in the show notes, but I would also recommend to your listeners if they're interested in, in um, social needs assessments, that they take a look at um, the University of California, San Francisco's Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network or SIREN. Um, they have um, an evidence and resource library that includes recent and historical research on SDOH, as well as a social needs assessment comparison table. So there's oh, okay. a way to uh, access their website, take a look at what social needs assessments exist, and then compare them based on what a clinician may need to be looking at. Um, but the other thing I'll say, you know, Rafi, you asked about overlooking patient needs. Um, you know, as clinicians develop care plans with and for patients, I think it's critical to consider what factors may impact their treatment progress and healing um, and how a clinician can address those specific issues. Yeah. So I would suggest, again, I've never been in your shoes, Rafi, as, <laughs> as a therapist, but I would say, you know, that assessment of SCOH factors shouldn't occur only at intake. You know, rather, it should be an iterative process occurring throughout the treatment relationship. And really, I think that it um, plays directly into the development of a care plan for the person. So, for example, yeah. you know, does your patient have access to transportation? Is their wound not healing properly because of their diet and access to healthy food? You know, does a patient feel comfortable using or have, or do they have access to technology? So those I think are the kinds of things that we should be routinely uh, taking account of and thinking about in our, in our work day to day with, um, with patients. Yeah. And just like we're, we should be obviously all those objective measures and the things that we're looking for from a, like a reimbursement standpoint, or even like a clinical outcome standpoint, like if you're reassessing the patient every time they come into the clinic, like it does not take a lot of extra effort to put some of this thought behind the questions you're asking your patients and kind of probing into some of those areas where they, that might really be impacting their, their, you know, outcomes in your clinic and with the treatment that you're providing. Right. I agree, Rafi. And think of it this way too. You might be the only person asking the question. Think about how impactful it is, yeah. right? So if you've got a patient who comes in and you're just administering an assessment, you might be the only person who has asked them, let's talk about your food security. You know, let's talk about your transportation. And so if, unless there's some, oftentimes it's been my experience, and unless there's somebody who's um, willing and able and positioned to provide some assistance, sometimes these needs will go unaddressed for a very long time. Yeah. Um, and so I think that uh, to empower your listeners to, uh, you know, implement uh, assessment 
uh, I would love for that to be a takeaway today yeah. <laughs> is, is, is that we should be assessing patient needs and that there are tools, evidence-based tools um, that already exist that would empower a clinician to do just that. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of leads into the, this next question here. So like, let's say you are working in a clinic or maybe in a hospital community-based setting or something like that. And we become aware as a clinician of a, a certain patient or particular patient's risk in, in one of these areas. Are there generally resources available in some of these circumstances, or does it depend on things like, you know, health insurance plan or carrier, or even, I mean, obviously zip code seems to be a, a big one. Like, are there grants available? Like what, what sort of resources are available to clinicians if they realize, okay, patient A here has a real significant need in, you know, let's just say housing or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question, um, Rafi. So I think that um, it's a it's a combination of things, right? So um, before we jump to, you know, specific resources, how to identify them, you know, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't highlight some patient choice here. Uh-huh. Um, so when we look at research about patient needs assessment, social needs assessment, you know, I found a pretty consistent theme. And that is that outcomes improve when patients prioritize their needs. So, you know, I even reflect a lot on my work as a social worker. I spent a lot of time telling people (laughs) what I thought their needs were. I I think that was sometimes, it contradicts the work that I was supposed to do as a social worker. (laughs) I, I think about that a lot, but really working hand in hand with the patient, I think, to identify what is their most pressing social need and what can we do to address that. Um, And, you know, I think that we can have and should have some lively discussion or debate about things like patient insight, because I'm sure that's something that your listener uh, will be thinking about. You know, what if the patient um, has impaired insight? We, We should consider that. But by and large, I think that patients are generally the experts about their personal lives. And so as we consider things like resource identification, I think it's necessary for a clinician to work collaboratively with a patient uh, to determine which issues take priority for them. Yeah, so no, to I get- think it's such a big, big piece. So we always, you know, we talk about being clinical experts all the time. We have this knowledge and this expertise and one of the previous guests on the show said, well, you should think of yourself really as a knowledge translator, right? Like we're taking the vast technical knowledge that we have from our training and we're bringing it to bear on the, the client's specific situation. But to your point, that client is the expert in what's going on with them, which is why we can't just dictate <laughs> to patients, well, this is what you got to do and you're going to get better, right? Like right. There, there needs to be a collaborative effort in the development of a, of a treatment plan or, or a plan of care or something like that. So. Sorry, cutting you off, going into, into resources. No, I'm so glad you did it. And just to add to that, Rafi, you know, I think that I like that concept of being a knowledge translator. I think that's really smart. I think, too, you know, when we say to a patient, this is what we know clinically you need to do to, to get better, uh, perhaps an extension of that conversation can be clinically, we know this is what you need to do to get better. Well, how can we work together? Yeah. You know, what is, what is a barrier to that? Or thinking more positively, what systems or structures are already already exist for you that will support you in this yeah. treatment plan? Um, but let's talk about resources. You know, the social worker is certainly a topic that uh, that uh, we discuss frequently because we like to think of ourselves as brokers of services. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think one way to look at this is to think about the individual's insurer. Um, you know, some insurers may have benefits that could address a member's, you know, specific SDOH risk factor. So, for example, there are some Medicare Advantage plans that have transportation benefits. And so having, you know, some knowledge of the individual's insurance um, is prudent uh, because their insurer may be able to, to bring some oh, resources wow, yeah. to bear. Um, you know, clinicians can also access uh, lots of resources online. For example, findhelp.org, um, where you can search based on zip code um, and it will populate or generate rather a wide range of resources based on that individual's zip code. 
and it's quite helpful and uh, easy to navigate in my opinion. But certainly there are other resources like nonprofits and other you know, web-based tools where you can search for, um, for services. Uh, again, there are government benefits like uh, you know, Lifeline, um, which helps to lower the cost of phone and internet. We know how internet is so important these days, particularly with telehealth. Um, things like you know, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program or SNAP, a lot of people still think of that as food stamps, but it, that SNAP is now its formal name. And then lastly, things like the, the, like the low income home energy assistance program that helps with things like energy costs and weatherization. So there are a wide variety of resources that exist, Rafi. I think that a patient may need help to find them, yeah. uh, may need help in determining what their eligibility is for those resources and applying for them. But also patient willingness is a factor and geography is a factor. Um, and so what may be available to someone in an urban area might not be available to someone in a rural area. And so I think we, we just have to consider the totality of a person's experience to determine you know, what might be out there for them. Yeah. Um, but again, I think there's lots of... Uh, insurance-based, web-based resources out there um, that patients and clinicians alike can can look into uh, to find some help. Yeah. Yeah. I was not aware of the, the insurance thing until we had a, a patient come into the clinic well, maybe six or seven months ago, and she had some significant needs from a like an economic standpoint. Like she, she was having to choose whether or not she was going to pay her energy bill or buy groceries, right? And um, and she was Medicare eligible, and we just have a resource here at the clinic that we use, one of one of our local agents here. And he ended up being able to get her just navigating the plan she already had, the Medicare Advantage plan she already had. There was a, a benefit in there for use, using a portion of, of their benefits to cover utilities or something like that. So yeah. she was able to kind of cover that, and it, it was at no extra cost to her, and no one really knew about it at all. It just happened to be one of those... You know, we were chit-chatting, or she was chit-chatting with with the insurance guy. He just happened to be in the clinic, and it was like, "Oh, well, did you know X, Y, Z?" And it's like, "No, unless I feel like unless they're explicitly uh, advertised or something like that, most people don't even know what kind of benefits are even available to them in some of their in some of these plans, right?" I agree with you, and and I think that also highlights you know the importance of patient empowerment. Yeah. So what you all did in that specific example was um, increase your patient patient's knowledge about her health plan. I mean, how incredible is that? So that she then knew what she was entitled to receive. And perhaps she was further educated about other benefits yeah. that were available to her. Um, and so I think that um, clinicians uh, also have a responsibility to the extent that it is within their scope of practice. Yeah. Uh, to, you know, empower a patient to gather all the information that they can about their health plan and about their broader community. Uh, because uh, certainly we would want a patient to feel as though they are able to, to the extent possible, independently navigate their care. Um, because we won't always have a person um, yeah, who can case manage. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and kind of on the line of insurance providers, like, do you see them uh, like has a, a broad like industry trend or whatever? Like, are they beginning to be more concerned about these social determinants of health or, or why should insurance companies even care about social determinants of health? Right. Yeah. So thinking about the importance of SDOH, you know, they account for 80 to 90 percent of a person's health. I mean, that's an incredible statistic. And so if a health plan is going to focus on the whole person, they have to pay attention to SDOH. Yeah. Um, now, I, I will say that health plans are constrained by the funding and reimbursement mechanisms that are already in place. Exactly. And for, you know, for any service that can't have a health claim attached to it, it just adds a layer of complexity, which can also significantly impact scale. So yes, I think that health plans should be concerned about SDOH. I think we're seeing a, a trend in um, addressing these issues, but we also understand just how challenging yeah. that can be. 
Yeah, again, there's no easy solution, right? <laughs> right, never. <laughs> well, we're coming near the end here. So um, I always ask this to folks, if there's like one or two main points that you'd want a listener to walk away uh, with from the episode, and I think you've already mentioned it, but what what would it or they be? Yeah, so I, I, again, I think that uh, my primary highlight here is that clinicians should be assessing for social needs. Again, it may be the only time that a person is being asked about their needs. And so um, how incredible that is to, to ask a patient, hey, what's going on? Um, and, and assist them with identifying resources. So that's my primary takeaway. The other, of course, is once you identify that a need exists, being empowered to help a patient yeah. um, get some resources um, and services in place to address those issues. Um, and again, I think some of it, Rafi, is not just assessment, but also just merely observation. So if you see something that seems different about your patient, let's talk, you know, what's going yeah. on and what can we do to work collaboratively to address that. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, Josie, thanks so much for taking the time. Um, if people want to find out more about you, about Soda Health, about y'all's work, where, where can they do that? Yeah, so we would um, love for uh, your listeners to learn more about Soda Health. Um, you can look us up online at sodahealth.com um, and you can uh, take a look at the members of our team and our background and, and what we uh, endeavor to provide as solutions um, you know, to address those health inequities. And the last thing I'll say, Rafi, about Soda Health, because I think it just speaks to um, how we, we value this issue so closely is that our CEO uh, is also a social worker by profession. And so it's a very interesting place to work. And, and certainly um, we understand uh, just how important SDOH is in making some changes um, within our broader health system. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thanks so much, Josie. You have a good day. All right, thanks, Rafi. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I think one of the one of the things I love about doing this show in particular is it gives me an excuse <laughs> to have really interesting conversations with uh, really accomplished and really interesting people. Right um, at the time before Josie left to do what she's doing now, Soda Health, she was running and managing a lot of the uh, the crisis work here in Georgia. She's just a very a high level individual, even when working with her on the consulting side of things, when we were consultants together, she is she's a, a person who cares very deeply about the the people that she's serving, um, and she just operates at a very high level. And I love having conversations about topics with folks who are experts in them. Right? They, it just provides a level of insight that you cannot get from reading the research articles, from even reading, um, watching videos and reading articles on even publications and, and websites about a specific topic. Unless you're dealing with somebody or you're having a conversation with somebody who has really not just learned the concepts, mastered the concepts, but really implemented in daily practice, you're always kind of left short, right? So, one of the things now looking back or, or listening back to this conversation before publishing it that, that stepped uh, really into the forefront and kind of was highlighted again was the idea of, obviously, we, we talk a lot about taking a biopsychosocial approach in this on this podcast, everything that we do at Rehab U, the clinic that I run here in Augusta. We very much value and try to prioritize understanding an individual client's specific situation and their specific needs given their context and their injury or their diagnosis. Because unlike textbooks, people are very different. And two folks that have the exact same diagnosis, maybe even the exact same etiology, maybe coming to the clinic or coming to their treatment from a wide varying background, right? And part of that does involve the actual fac factors that are directly impacting that individual's experience of their pain, for example, or their interaction with the healthcare system. But taking it a step further, 
understanding those social determinants of health and understanding some of these, as Josie and I talked about, some of these are really wide ranging issues that we're not going to be able to fix. I'm not going to be able to fix somebody's, the education system, for example, or the environment in a zip code in which they live. But understanding those factors at play helps me, one, as a clinician, tailor that treatment plan to be more specific to that individual in their context. But then I feel like, especially as a clinician that's been doing this for, for a number of years in the clinic and teaching at the university and kind of advising folks on how to, how to implement systems like this, a lot of times that's kind of where it stops. We don't, because of our focus, and again, part of this might be the reimbursement model and we're in this fee-for-service and we can't spend time on unproductive or unbillable you know, effort or resources, right? But a lot of times, especially as Josie said, allied health professionals, we might be the only person that is asking this individual about um, nutrition or housing security or employment or, or whatever the, the factor is that might be affecting their long-term clinical outcomes, regardless of this diagnosis or this healthcare engagement or encounter, right? Um, a lot of times we'll take note of it We'll put it down in the treatment plan. We might even tailor the treatment plan around that individual circumstances. But for the most part, we do feel kind of inept or unable to help this individual uh, achieve meaningful gains in those specific areas, right? Like take, for example, um, somebody that, that is maybe making a decision between paying the copay at their at the clinic or keeping the lights on at their house like how are we supposed to change that how are we supposed to affect the change um, I think part of that is doing it as a, on a on a person by person basis and understanding that there are resources available that's why we're going to link to everything that Josie um, mentioned and referenced on the podcast we're going to link to that on our website so that you can find it under the show notes because some of the some of the resources like find help org or whatever is a very good resource to, to help achieve some of that for the patient, for that specific patient, even though it doesn't fall under our purview, right? There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with taking a little bit of extra time and connecting a person with a resource or a person or a, a tool even that can help them achieve these outcomes in other areas of their life. I think I keep thinking of this example of, of these individuals that we've had that have issues with transportations or utilities or, or whatever it is, and simply just not knowing that their Medicare Advantage plan, for example, provides some of those benefits to them, and they're just not accessing them because they didn't know about them. So we always like having a, a, a qualified or a, a a licensed insurance agent that we know and that we trust who can help walk somebody through that. Like this is the plan they have. What can they, what are they missing out on or what, what possibilities are there for them to help, you know, pay the light bill or get transportation to their medical appointments. And a lot of times it doesn't take any extra money. It doesn't take any, really any extra time on the clinic's behalf other than making the connection. And then this individual ends up really overcoming a, a big barrier, a big hurdle that might prevent them from receiving the care that they need. So definitely this is one of those super important, super high level topics that really is going to be, I would imagine, taking more and more of center stage in our discussion, both as an industry, healthcare as an industry, but also in society and in and politically as we discuss like kind of how we how we improve the health of a nation, the health of a population in general. So um, that's all I've got for now. Hopefully this uh, conversation was insightful, and I hope at least it gets you thinking about some of those factors, some of those social determinants of health that might not be directly connected to whatever diagnosis or whatever symptom or ailment has brought a patient into your clinic, um, and begin to really think about how you can be the change that you want to see in the world for lack of a better lack of a better term because this is one of those topics that again it's one of those issues it's such a big issue it's so complex that we are not going to see at least this is my personal opinion here we're not going to see a solution arrive from government policy or regulatory implementation or 
Uh, I mean, even at some levels, giant corporate work, right? I think that in order to really affect change in some of these areas, as Josie mentioned, it's going to have to be sort of an individual citizenship and sort of a community building that takes place. It's going to have to be individual clinicians or individual people because that's ultimately what healthcare is. It's it's one person that's skilled in the art of healing, um, helping another person who is on their own unique road to recovery. And it's not until that relationship is truly restored and truly functioning the way that it should that some of these larger issues can be addressed. And because again, everybody's different, every circumstance is unique, and it's very hard to get some kind of blanket governmental policy that's gonna that's going to fix it. Again, that's that's just my um, that's my personal opinion that I think that if we really want to see some real changes in some of these areas, it takes individuals stepping up to the plate when the time arises. So that's all we've got this week, folks. Um, if you like the show, um, head on over to iTunes, leave us a rating and review. Helps people find the show. If you want to be notified when we drop new episodes, you can head on over to www.betteroutcomes.show and sign up there. We'll send you a, an email with a link to the to the show, to the show notes, and all the resources whenever we drop a new episode. We tend to release episodes every other week on Wednesdays. Sometimes there'll be a, a bonus uh, a bonus episode that drops on the off weeks, but I think I mentioned this a little bit ago. I'm in the middle of, of writing a book um, about healthcare, about humanizing healthcare, and that's kind of taking all of my free time and my spare time here. <laughs> so probably no no bonus episodes until that gets done. Hopefully that book will be released mid to late uh, 2022. So until the next time, folks, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.